Chapter 2 of The Northwest Passage by Roald Amundsen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Making for the Polar Sea. The only thing that showed a visible sign of emotion at our departure was the sky, but this it did emphatically. When we cast off on the night of June 16, 1903, the rain fell in torrents. Otherwise, all was quiet that dark night, and only those who were nearest and dearest were gathered on the quay to say goodbye. But in spite of the rain and darkness, and in spite of the last leave-taking, those on board the Yoa were in high spirits. The last week's enforced idleness had tired us all. As to my personal feelings, I have neither the power nor the desire to give expression to them. The strain of the last days, getting everything in order, the anxiety lest something might yet prevent us getting away, and the desperate efforts to procure the money still wanting, all this had greatly affected me both in mind and in body. But now it was all over, and no one can describe the untold relief we felt when the craft began to move. Beside the seven participators in the expedition, my three brothers bore us company to see us clear of the Christiania Fjord. All was hushed and quiet on board. The navigation was attended to, for the time, by the steam tug at our bows. The watch was entrusted to the helmsman and our six dogs. The dogs had formerly done service in the second Fram expedition, which had brought them home. Poor creatures! It would have been better to have let them remain in ice and snow than to drag them here, where they suffered sorely, especially this spring, which was unusually warm. They were now tied up along the rail and looked wretched in the rain, the greatest infliction to an Arctic dog. To get here, they had made one voyage in the drenching rain, and now they had to endure another to get back. But, at any rate, back they were going, poor things, to their home. At six o'clock in the morning, we put into Horton Harbor and took on board 400 weight of gun cotton. Explosives may be useful on a polar expedition, and I should regard it as a great mistake to start without them, even if, as happened in our case, one has had no occasion to use them. At eleven o'clock in the morning, we were off to Faraday. The weather had improved and the rain had ceased. As we were about to let go the tug rope, it parted and spared us the trouble. The Yoa, under full sail, was making south close to the wind, dipping her flag as a last salute to our dear home. Long did we follow the tug with our telescope, and long did we wave our caps in answer to the farewell signals which continued as long as the boat was in sight. Now we were alone, and now we had to set to work in earnest. Deep-laden and heavy as she was, the Yoa did not show much speed. As all had been made shipshape beforehand, we were able to begin our regular duties at once. The watches were kept and relieved in turn. It was glorious. No anxiety, no troublesome creditors, no tedious people with foolish prophecies or sneers. Only we seven joyous and contented men on board, where we wished to be, and with bright hope and confident trust in the future we were going out to meet. The world, which had been so oppressive and gloomy so long, seemed to be again full of spirit and delight. The last we saw of land was the Lister Light. 
in the north sea we encountered a couple of gales none too agreeable to those who were not sea-proof the dogs were now let loose and jumped about as they liked on days when we had heavy seas and the yoa rolled and she can roll they would go about studying the faces of the various members of the expedition the rations they had one dry cod and two pints of water were not sufficient to satisfy their appetites and they resorted to every possible expedient to get an extra meal they were old acquaintances and agreed fairly well at any rate as far as concerned the male element with the two ladies carrie and scylla matters were different carrie was the elder and exacted absolute obedience which scylla who was also a grown-up lady found it difficult to put up with so it often happened that they tore each other's hair ola who was acknowledged to be the boss did his best to prevent such battles it was a rare sight to see old ola intelligent to an exceptional degree jumping about with the other two one on either side trying to prevent them fighting our daily routine was soon working smoothly and everyone gave the impression of being eminently fitted for his post we constituted a little republic on board the yoa we had no strict laws i know myself how irksome this strict discipline is good work can be done without the fear of the law as a result of my own experience i had determined to apply the system of freedom on board as far as possible to let everyone feel that he was independent in his own sphere this creates among sensible people a voluntary spirit of discipline of far greater value than enforced rule everyone thus obtains the consciousness that he is a man who is depended upon as a thinking being and not as a wound-up machine the zeal for work is doubled and so is the work itself i can recommend to all the system adopted on board the yoa my comrades also seem to value it and the voyage of the yoa was far more like a holiday trip of comrades than the prelude to a serious struggle lasting for years on june twenty fifth we passed between fair isle and the orkneys out into the atlantic the many who had predicted our destruction ere we reached here should have seen us now under full sail and with a fresh breeze from the southeast making it high speed for the west the yoa vied with the seagulls in dancing on the crests of the billows yet it was remarkable how devoid of life was the sea we saw neither bird nor fish to say nothing of sailing craft we had only seen one full-rigged vessel since we took bearings off lister the engine came in useful several times when the wind dropped so that we were only making under two knots i decided to put it in action it was however important to economize the petroleum as much as possible as we could not tell how long the voyage might last everything was now in good trim and running smoothly the day was divided into four six-hour watches three men to each watch the service was shared equally among us all when the motor was operating the engineers were mostly in the engine room yet they were always ready to help us deckhands at a pinch the old feud between deck and engine room hands was unknown on board the yoa we all worked with a common object and willingly and cheerfully took part in everything thus as a rule two men remained on deck and we each took our turn at the helm 
At the end of July, sickness began to appear among the dogs. It seemed to affect them mentally at first. They went about in a stupid state. They neither saw nor heard. They had little or no relish for their food. After a couple of days, their hindquarters became paralyzed, so that it was only with great difficulty that they could drag themselves along. Finally, they had convulsions, and we were glad to end their lives with a bullet. In this way, we lost two fine beasts, Carl and Joseph, to the great satisfaction, be it said, of Scylla, who now remained cock of the walk. At first we proceeded, as much as possible, by great circle sailing. The weather had been favorable, and our progress unexceptionable. On July 5th, we caught a light breeze from the south-southeast. We were running with peaked sails and cut through the water at a speed of ten knots. The main boom was well eased off and the stopper made fast. It was drizzling when I went to my bunk in the evening. At 1 a.m., the wind jumped round to the east with the result that the mainsail swung over. The boom stopper broke and the boom swung round with terrible force. This might have had serious consequences, but luckily, simultaneously with the stopper, the belaying pin to which the peak halyard was fastened also broke, with the result that the peak came down and deadened the blow which otherwise might have cost us our boom. It was a comparatively cheap experience. We were more careful at night after that. Our four surviving dogs, meanwhile, began to be manifestly bored. In the beginning, they could study wind and weather and thus kill time. But now, meteorological variations failed to interest them, and their thoughts sought new fields. Idleness is a root of all evil, it is said, and this applies just as well to beasts as to men. Lurvin and Bismarck, who so far had been quite devoted and loyal to Ola, now began to make objections and dispute his authority. In other words, Lurvin, who was born wicked, stirred Bismarck up. The latter was a big, fine dog, about two years old, with the most splendid set of teeth I have ever seen. Age had left their mark on Ola's teeth, and they were now the worse for wear. As their ancient leader, he still inspired respect, and the others thought twice before attacking him. Lurvin, however, played his part very cleverly. He would start at full speed toward Ola. Bismarck, who perceived that an assault was imminent, instantly joined his companion to assist in the undertaking. When right up to Ola, Lurvin would pull up. Consequently, Bismarck, who was unprepared for this stratagem, ran straight into the enemy's mouth. As a rule, he would then get a good drubbing from the more experienced Ola. Lurvin was the most mischievous dog I ever knew. I can see him now with his head on one side, his little eyes blinking and his tail cocked sideways, gliding along the deck, meditating some new prank. He often got a licking from us for his nasty tricks, and accordingly deferred his operations to a time when he was less observed. If, for instance, we were busy with the sails, we might be quite sure of a fight. In the pitch darkness of the night, when he had brought the others together, he often seized the opportunity to fall upon Ola in the rear, and then the old dog was overmatched. Poor old Ola, he was often roughly mauled in these nightly contests. 
on these occasions scylla would jump around the combatants making the most deafening noise and by way of variety snapping at their legs it rained continually and steadily and we collected water in all our vessels for washing and to water the dogs but as a rule we washed in salt water and did not make such a point of being absolutely white we now kept a sharp lookout for ice and on july ninth we set eyes on two narrow strips which lay undulating in the sea showing us that we might now shortly expect the main mass of the ice and so it was not long after we saw pack ice ahead in great dense masses in its wake came the fog ice's faithful attendant and it kept us company during the greater part of our navigation in arctic waters on july eleventh at two thirty p m we sighted land a little to the west of cape farewell the high craggy mountain landscape stood out splendidly the ice seemed to lie quite close up to the shore following the advice of the scotch whale fishers milne and adams i stood well off the shore to avoid getting into the ice on the thirteenth we met the first icebergs two solitary majestic masses those of us who had not seen such things before were naturally much interested and the telescopes were in great demand at the sight of the ice the hunter's blood began to stir in most of us a lookout was kept with the telescopes for possible booty and bear stories were a constant subject of conversation of course bruin stood highest in the list of anticipated adventures but we should also have walked on a crested seal the big handsome seal which is found on the ice along the greenland coast a couple of the mightiest hunters whispered softly of the possibility of killing a whale at last on july fifteenth our hunters tasted their first blood we made that day a short detour into the ice and shot four big crested seals the fresh flesh tasted excellent Lindstrom talked volubly of rolled meat, brawn, and sausages till our mouths watered. He bragged of his culinary exploits as chef on the pram. Unfortunately, his tale concerned only the past, and we expected and hoped to see his deeds in the present. But, so far, in vain. Well, honor to the Yoa's cook. He has pickled many a good piece of beef for us, anyhow it was however not only we men who relished fresh meat the dogs exhibited the most manifest proofs that they were equally fond of good fare they stuffed till they were as tight as drums especially did lurvin distinguish himself he was now a sorry sight smeared all over with fat and blood and the scavengers who had hard work at the best of times during every watch more than earned their wages in clearing up after such a feast every sailor is familiar with that result of having a dog on board so just imagine four dogs at once quite devoid of any polite training the next day we were again in the ice and shot seven more seals harpoons and knives had very hard wear in that seal season our inventive engineer however had hit upon the idea of driving the grindstone by means of the sounding apparatus which was worked by the shaft so he managed to do all the grinding without any assistance lindstrom thought seal liver one of the greatest delicacies in existence and he treated us to it 
morning and night. It must be owned it does not taste badly at all. When we came near Lily Hillifisk Bank, Little Halibut Bank, the engineer, who was as enthusiastic a fisherman as he was a hunter, got his fishing tackle in order and installed himself in the stern, whence he carried on his fishing in grand style. He was himself very sanguine and was backed up by the cook, but we were very skeptical. Great was his triumph when one morning he actually caught a little halibut, which tasted beautifully. On July 20th, we made the acquaintance of the sugar loaf. The coast still generally maintained its character with high craggy summits. However, it was more lively here with shoals of whales every now and then. The weather was also better shorewards than out at sea. It kept clear with a light breeze from the south. The temperature of the water was quite 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Strangely enough, we saw no more ice, although one would think that the steady north wind we had had against us all the time would have brought a quantity of ice southwards. Could it be, perhaps, that there was no more ice? We now noted for the first time that the compass was not to be relied on. This is, however, a well-known phenomenon here on the west coast of Greenland. Further out at sea, it is trustworthy enough. The large amount of iron in the mountains is probably the cause. July 24th was a beautiful day, dead calm and dazzlingly bright. It was the first real summer day we had had since our departure. We seized the opportunity to bring up into the air all the bread which we had brought fresh from home and had spread out below in the hold. Much of it was spoilt, but we cut the mold away and aired what was left whenever we had a chance. A sail ahead is the sudden cry, and there was life aboard. All telescopes, and we had a lot aboard the Yoa, came out. A full-rigged ship, someone exclaimed. Well, we shall be content with a schooner, thought I. I see clearly it is a brig. It is probably one of the Royal Danish Greenland Trading Company ships on her way home. There's another, shouts one with a telescope to his eye. Well, it is beginning suddenly to be populous here in the ice waste and we stroll up and down the deck and mutter in very high spirits what a surprise we shall be for the new arrivals. We must admit that we even smartened up the deck a little. We might have a visit. Then there was a telescope that was shut up in a decisive manner, followed by a burst of laughter. Well, gentlemen, says Lieutenant Hansen, it is an iceberg. Then follow indignant protests, spying through the glasses and discussion while we continued to approach the object of dispute. The heat of discussion disappears, the full-rigged ship is abandoned, and after it the brig. The schooner still had one adherent, even when we advanced near enough to see clearly before us a great gathering of icebergs. They seemed to be aground on the Storia Hellefisk Bank, Big Halibut Bank. Later in the forenoon, we sighted Disco Isle, high and flat-topped, easily recognizable at a long distance. But it takes a long time to get to it. At eight o'clock in the evening, we were still thirty miles off, and only at half-past ten the next forenoon did we get in near the shore. A barrier of grounded icebergs seemed to block the entrance to Godhaven. But soon Nielsen, the governor of the colony, came out to us in a boat to bid us welcome and pilot us in. 
we met a violent squall and had to tack as the motor could not manage it alone at one o'clock we anchored godhaven lies on a small low island separated from disco by a very narrow sound in nineteen o three the town numbered one hundred eight souls it is the residence of the inspector of north greenland it is beautifully situated with a lofty and mighty disco to the north and the sea to the south and west from time to time filled with heavy icebergs we at once paid visits to the authorities of the place the inspector and the governor of the colony in the previous year i had been in correspondence with inspector dugard jensen who had promised to get me ten dogs with complete outfits he received us with great amiability and was able to inform us that all had arrived in good condition sledges kayaks ski twenty barrels of petroleum and so forth the royal danish greenland trading company had shown us the great favor of loading these things for us on one of their ships i owe director ridberg and office manager Krenzel my best thanks for the exceptional treatment afforded to the yoa expedition by the company nielsen was untiring in the help he afforded us in every respect we divided at once into two parties one to carry out the necessary observations while the other took charge of all the work on board lieutenant hansen superintended the astronomical and wick the magnetic observations lund and hansen were to get all on board and in general to get the ship ready to continue our voyage Ristvet went backwards and forwards and had his hands full at one time he had to take readings of the chronometer for the astronomer at another for the magnetician and now he was in the hold looking after the water tanks now in the engine room drawing petroleum it was a busy time but how we worked all seemed inspired with the same zeal to get the work done well and quickly so that we might get away as soon as possible and lose no time or opportunity for progress lindstrom knew how to make matters go smoothly in his own way he was busy everywhere bought from and bartered with the eskimo now a salted salmon now a fresh one now an eider duck now a loon so at that time the bill of fare was well varied lindstrom's coin was baker hansen's mouldy spiced cakes from christiania if this coin had not the right ring or was not quite up to the standard it was at any rate both round and current when an eskimo came to sell lindstrom was fetched on deck the negotiations were carried on in Eskimo and good Nordland Norse. The retorts which fell from both sides were long and smart, but those from the Eskimo grew more obsequious and timid as compared to the fatherly condescension of Lindstrom, who did not seem to want or wish for anything in the world. We, who knew that our dear cook had not the faintest notion of Eskimo, gathered in couples ready to burst with laughter when the discussion had lasted some time lindstrom would suddenly show a bright gleam of intelligence and disappear into the hold big-looking and benign he would come back again with a mouldy spiced cake under each arm the eskimo regarded lindstrom with an expression of the liveliest astonishment as he asked for tobacco in exchange for his salmon any attempt to make lindstrom understand his error is met with a thorough condescending shoulder-shrugging non-comprehension lindstrom takes the salmon the man takes the cakes and the transaction is finished
The epilogue is, perhaps, after all the best of it, to hear Lindstrom relate that he, of course, understood every word uttered by the Eskimo, but as he asked for three cakes, I pretended I did not understand and gave him two. I had my dark suspicion that the Eskimo had taken the cakes home to his own people more than once, and undoubtedly with better reason boasted to them that he had pretended he did not understand. Our stay in Godhaven was altogether a pleasant one. Our greatest plague was the gnats that worried us to such a degree in our work that from time to time we had to fly below into the cabin to get a little peace. It was seldom our tormentors followed us there. On July 31st, we were ready. The various observations had been taken, and all our outfit was aboard. We had no time to spare and had to hurry, so we took leave of the amiable people in Godhaven and weighed anchor. The inspector, the governor, and his assistant accompanied us out to the sound. The public buildings displayed bunting, and a salute thundered from the battery on the hill. Among the belt of skerries around the shore, we said a last farewell to our friends, again saluted the hospitable Danish flag, and we were again left to ourselves. As soon as we were out at sea, we met our old friend the Nor'wester and had to tack. Perry Scarry was marked wrongly on our chart, and we barely escaped running onto it. Luckily, we saw the breakers on it and turned away in time. It is quite low and has a striking resemblance to a whale's back. During the stay at Godhaven, I had served out some of our thick underclothing, Iceland jerseys and Nansen clothing, to each of our companies so that we might be ready to meet the ice. Most of us had also procured sealskin clothing by barter. On August 6th, we were abreast of Upernavik, 12 miles off. Here, hundreds of icebergs had collected. They looked larger and more compact than those we had met to the south. Of drift ice, we had not yet seen a trace, and we began to entertain the hope of slipping unhindered across Melville Bay. The day after, we passed Itavidliarsuk in latitude 73 degrees 30 minutes north, the northernmost spot inhabited by civilized men. On August 8th, we were off Holmes Island and were about to begin the voyage across Melville Bay. This is the most dreaded stretch in that part of the Arctic Ocean. Many are the vessels that have made their last voyage here. It is, however, earlier in the year that the conditions are especially dangerous. In June and July, when the ice breaks up and the whale fishers go north, it is, of course, important to be first in the field. They often have a severe struggle with the ice. The outer part of the ice in the bay breaks first, and the inner part remains quite whole. This is what is called shore ice or fast ice. Along its edge, the whalers seek a passage, and the wise ones among them do not quit it till they are out in the open water on the north side of the bay. On the borders of the shore ice, there are often formed natural havens where vessels can run in for shelter when the drift ice sets in. If there be no natural dock, most of the whalers have sufficient crews to cut their way into the ice in a comparatively short time. It is the Scotch who reign supreme in these waters, and there is no doubt that these Scotch whalers, under dangerous and difficult conditions, have become some of the doughtiest Arctic seamen of our time. At Holmes Island, we set course for Cape York. 
the state of things seemed very favorable no fast ice was to be seen and as far as the eye reached melville bay was filled up with icebergs and not ice i e fragments of icebergs at three o'clock in the afternoon we passed the well-known landmark called the devil's thumb a mountain peak with such a striking resemblance to an old rugged upturned thumb that we all burst out laughing at the sight of it we now set all sail and put the motor at full speed it was important to get as quickly as possible across the bay and to spare nothing but alas our course towards cape york was not of long duration next morning we were stopped by thick pack ice during the night a quarter of an inch of new ice had formed so we were obliged to accept our ill luck and turn southward like so many before us however we first turned aside into the ice to get a nearer look at it the even surfaces and sharp edges indicated that it was newly broken up shore ice probably we had kept too near the shore we now followed this ice towards the southwest a tongue of ice stretched out towards the southwest ahead of us the atmosphere was gloomy above it and indicated open water however behind that tongue of ice there was another on the opposite side of a large bay full of drift ice we tried to force our way into that bay but the ice soon got more tightly packed and pressed us out again further out the ice was considerably heavier and it looked as if we were just on the boundary between the newly broken up shore ice and the drift ice i therefore resolved to keep on the move to and fro here where probably any change in the conditions would at once manifest itself and i was right at midnight the ice slackened and let us slip in without any particular trouble at the same time a fog set in pitch dark those who have not seen the ice fog of the arctic ocean do not know what fog is london fog is nothing to it we could not see the ship's length but we held our course with the aid of the compass and the ice politely made room for us thus we went forward through the damp fog but if anyone asked me about the ice conditions in that part of melville bay i could not give any information whatever the monotony was broken now and again by a seal which at once paid forfeit with its life we reveled in the fresh seal's flesh we had not seen a bird all the time but we noticed what seemed to be quite large coveys of little ox that flew in thousands right by the ship one great advantage in drift ice is that it affords an abundant supply of water on almost every flow there is a pool of the most beautiful drinking water and we even allowed ourselves the luxury of washing and bathing in fresh water on august thirteenth at half past two in the morning i stood at the helm after relieving the watch at two shivering with cold perhaps as an arctic traveller i ought not to admit this but anyhow i did feel perishing with cold my two companions in the watch strolled about the deck and tried to keep warm as best they could the fog settled down and drenched everything it came in contact with it was sheer misery in the early morning the watch below were now enjoying steaming hot coffee which they well deserved after a spell of six hours duty suddenly a gleam of light broke through the fog and as if by enchantment there opened up before me a wide view out into the bright daylight right in front of us and seemingly quite near 
the wild rugged landscape of cape york appeared suddenly like a scene from fairyland we all three cried out simultaneously with surprise and delight the watch below came rushing up from their coffee and soon all hands stood in rapt and silent contemplation of the scene the morning was so dazzlingly supernaturally clear that we imagined we could make cape york in a couple of hours sail and yet it was forty miles off to the east the whole interior of melville bay lay before us right inside in the farthest background we could see several mountain tops an impenetrable mass of ice filled the bay mighty icebergs rose here and there out from the mass of ice when at last we looked back we saw the fog out of which we had suddenly slipped lying like a thick wall behind us such a sight is one of those wonders only to be seen in the never-to-be-forgotten realms of ice and make us long to return and feel again their enchantment in spite of all toil and privations the ice conditions in the direction of our course looked promising there certainly lay some ice to the windward but we did not pay much attention to it however on the same day at noon the ice closed in so that there only remained an open channel towards the north we were then twenty-five miles from cape york however the ice gradually slackened ahead of us smoothing the way and at five o'clock in the afternoon we reached the edge of the shore ice under cape york then for a time we headed for cape dudley diggs the fog now set in again and we made fast to the ice to wait till it lifted two of our hunters availed themselves of the opportunity to go out in a boat and shoot small auk after a couple of hours they came back with birds enough for a dinner they tasted like the most delicious field fare and it is wonderful what a gourmand one becomes on a voyage in the arctic ocean when the watch was being relieved next morning it cleared up our near surroundings were rather thickly packed with ice however a mile south of us there was a large broad opening in the ice going westward and though unwilling to go back i thought it the most advisable course after a lot of toil we got out into the opening it widened out more and more to the westward and there was no doubt about it leading out into open water and indeed at half-past three we were in a sea free from ice melville bay had been conquered we had every reason to be pleased that portion of the sea had always appeared to me as the most difficult to get through with such a small ship as ours in the whole northwest passage and now we had navigated it without mishap at four o'clock on august fifteenth we reached dalrymple rock where the scotch whalers captain milne and adams had deposited considerable stores for us dalrymple rock is easily recognizable from the descriptions it rises right up from the sea in a cone when approaching it as we did from the east side of the wolstenholm island one first catches sight of a little island to the north of it this is eiderduck island here and on dalrymple rock the eskimo gather large quantities of eggs every year two kayaks ahead suddenly bawled a lookout atop in a trice all hands were on deck i stopped the engine and the kayaks came close alongside we were very anxious to make the acquaintance of the north greenland eskimo of whom many strange things are reported they were two really good-looking men their costumes seemed to us somewhat strange at first sight 
and there was no end of laughter when one of them stooped to pick up a knife he had dropped and in doing so showed what a stitch in time might have saved nine a pretty bow indeed they were extremely lively jabbered both together and threw their arms about and gesticulated there was evidently something particular they wanted to tell us but we of course could not understand a syllable so one of them put on a broad grin and said malleus and then it dawned upon us what it was all about the danish so-called literary expedition to greenland under malleus ericsson must be in the neighborhood according to what we had heard of it we thought it must be with the cape york eskimo scarcely had the name been uttered when there burst forth a rattle of firearms as if a regular battle were raging behind a piled mass of ice and six kayaks issued from among it like flashes of lightning one of the kayaks was decked with a little norse flag and another with a danish flag it was in truth a pleasant surprise we soon had on board the leader of the expedition Mylius ericsson and one of its members newt rasmussen together with four eskimo they were made welcome and question and answer tumbled over each other pell-mell in joyous confusion this lasted some time until both sides quieted down sufficiently to exchange some sort of reasonable information our first anxiety was the depot and to our relief we learnt that it was in capital order at seven o'clock in the evening we reached dalrymple rock there was no harbour in the island so we had to lie unprotected however i rode at once ashore with lund to inspect the depot and determine how we must set about getting it aboard Mylius Erickson handed me a letter from Milne and Adams in which they wished us all luck on our voyage. I cannot sufficiently thank the two gentlemen for the readiness with which they undertook the tedious work and the care with which it was carried out. The depot lay among big stones on a slope of a ridge and was surrounded on all sides with barbed wire. At the end of a ridge a footing of old ice projected out into the sea and formed the most beautiful natural key we therefore decided to rig up our derrick on the quay as a crane and with its aid to put the cases right into the boat after we had brought them up in sledges so as not to make the transport by boat too long i took the yoa as close into the shore as possible and anchored there i admit that was imprudent on an open coast but it was of importance for us to get away quickly we sent a boat to the shore to fetch count moltke the third member of the expedition who was lying ill we snatched a hasty supper and at ten o'clock we set to work lieutenant hansen remained on board to superintend i myself undertook the work on shore with the kind assistance of our danish guests and some eskimo hansen was to ship the cases and lund was to heave them on board the whole depot a hundred and five cases had to be taken as deck cargo meanwhile the motor was cleaned and polished by wristvet and wick at two o'clock in the morning we took a little rest and a cup of coffee which we were greatly in need of the cases weighed about two and a half hundred weight each on average so it was no child's play at half past two we had the satisfaction of seeing count moltke join our company after the coffee we set to work again i now had four eskimo to help me it has often been said that the eskimo are lazy unwilling and possessed of all other bad qualities under the sun certainly this was not true as to these four helpers of mine 
They handled our cases, many of which weighed nearly 400 weight, with an ease and skill which would be hard to match. Instead of the oaths and execrations, which among civilized workmen are wont to accompany such work, these children of nature carried out their task with song and merriment. At eight in the morning, the last cases, together with six barrels of petroleum, were brought down to the quay, and I expected that we should be quite finished by nine o'clock. But, alas, I had miscalculated. All at once there sprung up a sea breeze which compelled me to go aboard in a hurry. The anchor was weighed and the foresail set. Stopping to get the mainsail up was out of the question. The squall became very strong, but luckily the wind jumped round so that it filled our sails. Now we went ahead at good speed, and it was high time, as our distance from the shore was to be measured by inches. We sailed round the island and anchored on the lee on the other side. But now we had the fatiguing work of transporting the eleven cases and six barrels of petroleum left on the quay over to the opposite side of the island. I dreaded proposing this to the Eskimo, but they only joked and laughed and set to work as if they had only just begun. It was seven o'clock in the evening before we had finished. On our arrival at the island, the dogs were let loose so as not to be in the way during the work. They employed their time well. The old Fram dogs and the new ones from Godhaven seized the opportunity to settle up in a battle royal all the quarrels on board they had nursed up to date. Many of them bore dreadful marks of the battle when they were brought aboard again. One of our new dogs declined to come on board, and we had to leave him behind. The Eskimo would be sure to catch him when he got hungry. Mylius Erickson gave me four splendid dogs, two full-grown and two puppies a couple of months old. These two puppies became unusually fine dogs. We called them Mylius and Yoa, and the latter was undoubtedly our very best dog. At eleven o'clock in the evening, we reached the Sonder Island, where the literary expedition was staying, and although it was very hard to say goodbye to them there, so soon after meeting them, we were compelled to do so. We were now heavily laden. Our stock of petroleum on leaving Dalrymple was about 4,245 gallons. The deck was down to the water line, and the cases were piled almost up to the main boom. The dogs got on top of the cases and waylaid each other. We had rare trouble to keep the two hostile parties from fighting. At 2.30 in the morning of August 17th, we continued our voyage. It was a magnificent morning. Glacier upon glacier, sown far towards the north until the land ended at Cape Perry. At the side of the glacier, where our brave countryman Evan Astrup halted with Perry to begin his journey over the inland ice, I found it hard to take my eyes and thoughts away from it, but I had to do so and fix my attention on my own affairs. Ahead of us stretched a wall of heavy, newly formed icebergs which we had to keep clear of. Greenland now began to dwindle away, and we stood well in toward Cape Horsburg, the northern entrance to the Lancaster Sound. Later on in the day we passed the Kerry Islands at a distance of fifteen miles. Luckily, the weather kept calm and clear. Loaded down as the Yoa was, we were not fit to battle with a storm. It was a stiff job to get round Cape Horsburg. The wind had quite dropped, and a heavy swell from the south, meeting the current out of the sound, caused a very nasty sea. 
and the Yoa was not a flyer when traveling under engine power. At last, on August 20th, at half-past four in the morning, we rounded the Cape and got into Lancaster Sound. As I had determined to go to Beachy Island in order to undertake a series of magnetic observations there, we kept close in under the northern shore. With the exception of a few icebergs and a little loose ice extending from the shore, the fairway was very nearly free from ice. Fog followed us all the way to Cape Warrender. Here it lifted, and in the fine clear weather we could observe the land. It presents a very different aspect from that of the wild and rugged look of Greenland's mountains. The most prevalent form is the plateau, but it is very often broken by dome-shaped heights. It is barren, but yet not unpleasing. The clear weather did not last long. By the following morning the fog hung over us again. The compass was now rather unreliable, and this, combined with the fog, must serve as our excuse for having made a mistake here. We did so twice. But I console myself with the knowledge that the same fate may befall those who come after us. After rather hard tacking, we reached Beachy Island on August 22nd at nine o'clock in the evening and anchored in Erebus Bay. By the time the anchor was down and the vessel hove to, most of us had turned in to enjoy a night of unbroken sleep. It was about ten o'clock when the twilight came on. I was sitting on one of the chain lockers looking towards the land with a deep, solemn feeling that I was on holy ground, Franklin's last safe winter harbor. My thought wandered back, far back. I pictured to myself the splendidly equipped Franklin expedition heading into the harbor and anchoring there. The Erebus and Terror and all their splendor, the English colors flying at the masthead, and the two fine vessels full of bustle, officers in dazzling uniforms, bosuns with their pipes, blue-clad sailors, two proud representatives of the world's first seafaring nation up here in the unknown ice waste. A boat is lowered from the commander's ship. Sir John is going to land. The men pull hard, proud of having the commander in the boat. His clever face, full of character, beams with gentleness. He has a word for everyone and is therefore loved by his men. They feel an unbounded confidence in the experienced old leader in polar lands. How they listen attentively to every word that passes between their chief and the two officers between whom he is seated. The conversation concerns the unfavorable state of the ice and the possibility of wintering at Beachy. Sir John finds it hard to reconcile himself to such an idea, but from old experience he knows that in these regions one is often compelled to act very much against one's will. Certainly these brave men had succeeded in discovering much new land, but only to see their expectations of the accomplishment of the Northwest Passage that way brought to naught by impenetrable masses of ice. The winter of 1845-1846 was passed here on this spot. The dark outlines of crosses marking graves inland are silent witnesses before my eyes as I sit here. The specter of scurvy showed itself for the first time, and claimed, if not many, yet several lives. At the breaking up of the ice in 1846, the Erebus and the Terror again stood out to sea. 
once more resounds the merry song of the sailors and the vessels pass out between cape riley and beachy once more waves england's proud flag it is the farewell of the franklin expedition from this point it passed into darkness and death the great explorer dr john ray was the first to bring news as to the region where the franklin expedition was lost but the honor of having brought the first certain intelligence as to the fate of the whole expedition belongs to admiral sir leopold mcclintock so many books of travel contain accounts of the tragedy that i will not repeat the story franklin and all his men laid down their lives in the fight for the northwest passage let us raise a monument to them more enduring than stone the recognition that they were the first discoverers of the passage august twenty third brought fog wick and i at once began the magnetic observations they were watched this time with great excitement and interest by all on board indeed our route to the magnetic pole depended on their result it must not be denied that many hoped that the compass would point westward towards the musk oxen on melville island and prince patrick's land the dipping needle was released and its movements were followed with breathless suspense it oscillated long and at last came to rest in a southwesterly direction although at times i also had thought with pleasure of the hunting fields in the northwest i felt very satisfied now that the point was decided my original plan could be continued and my comrades were inspired with the same feeling we were always agreed that the best route from the northwest passage must be the very one the magnetic needle now indicated wick was a steady worker a more conscientious and careful assistant i could not have had lieutenant hansen could not make use of his astronomical instruments the sun would not come out and we had to satisfy ourselves with taking the bearings of a few known points happily commander pullen had made a special chart of beachy island in eighteen fifty four which was now of great use to us meanwhile the lieutenant took the opportunity of exploring the nature of the country and collecting a great number of fossils northumberland house is the name given to a building erected on beachy island by pullen in the autumn of eighteen fifty two it was intended to contain provisions and equipment for sir edward belcher's squadron which was sent to search for franklin on the return of this squadron the house and its contents were left behind as a depot for franklin in case he should pass the island three boats of different construction were also left behind sir leopold mcclintock visited the place on his voyage of exploration with the fox in eighteen fifty eight even at that time the depot had begun to spoil and when sir alan young arrived there in eighteen seventy eight with the pandora it had been practically destroyed by bears no wonder then that in nineteen o three we found the whole completely ruined we took away with us the last remains of coal and a very small quantity of sole leather which was very acceptable although exposed for so many years to wind and weather the leather was still quite good and was even preferred to the expedition's new best american sole leather but the fate of that depot it seemed to me ought to be a warning to arctic travelers who rely upon depots fifty years old the marble slab erected by mcclintock on behalf of lady franklin to the memory of her husband and his companions and men 
was found in order. It lay where it was placed in 1858, at the foot of the Belcher column, set up in memory of those who perished in Belcher's expedition. In the same column is also placed a little memorial tablet to the French Lieutenant Bellot, who was drowned in these regions. All of these things we found in excellent order, as also were the graves themselves. We re-erected the only gravestone that had fallen down. The heaviness and sadness of death hang over Beachy Island. Here there is neither life nor vegetation. There is scarcely any water. When two men, after great trouble, at last found water to fill our tanks and took it with them in one of our canvas boats, the boat sank and the water was lost. A walk to the summit of the island gave us a fairly good view, though not as good as might be wished, owing to the continuance of the fog. We, however, got a peep a few miles out, now and then. The sea is free from ice on all sides. There is not a block to be seen anywhere. But what is that? All at once the entrance is filled up with heavy white mass. It looks like a continuous mass of new ice emerging from the water. Pancake ice, as we call it. Our glasses are brought to bear on the phenomenon. The mass is seen to move. Hang it all, boy, that fellow Morton should have been here, is the joyful exclamation of our fishermen at the sight of the mighty shoal of whitefish now approaching. On August 24th, about noon, we completed our magnetic observations. We had pitched our tent on the bank of a dried-up riverbed. The spot was marked with tub-staves, well rammed in, and large stones so that a possible future observer will, it is to be hoped, have no difficulty in identifying it. We once more all assembled at the old Franklin Depot and went carefully through everything to see if there was still anything we might have any use for. Several of the members of the expedition had set their fancy on an old handcart and were anxious that we should take it with us. On being asked whether they would take it into their bunks, they gave in. Of course, they understood that we had no room. But the smith had made a discovery which sent him into the wildest raptures, a very ancient anvil. To dissuade him from taking it with him was impossible. The expedition would simply go to the bottom if we did not have the anvil with us. But we never had any use for it. We deposited an account of our progress up to this point in a tin case and hung it up in the most conspicuous place, above the bellow tablet on the Belcher column. Then we rowed to the ship and went aboard, all well satisfied with the sojourn at Beachy and only wishing to get further ahead. End of chapter 2